Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this special edition of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. This is uh, the big one. We, we talked so much about the Assyrians, but this is like what life was really like for a citizen of Assyria. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, a lot of times when we study history, we study the kings and all the big men and the big people and the big events. But, you know, we people lived and how did they live and that kind of thing is very interesting as well. I think it gives you good context for the other, that part of the history too, right? Absolutely. This, and I have a disclaimer. This, what we'll talk about now, primarily applies to the 7th century B.C., because that's the period we know a lot of stuff about. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons for that is all the clay tablets that have been preserved. And the invention of the Assyrian postal service mm-hmm. is the first step to this extensive knowledge that happened somewhere around 745 BC. So we don't really know much about the time before that. But that's why we're doing it here before the 630s BC. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then and we have some archaeology too, but we do know a lot. And of course, that's when the empire was at its peak in this, you know, the seventh century, and basically, you know, the eight hundreds to the six hundreds was the Neo Assyrian Empire. Let's acknowledge our sources. You are, uh, you have a great source for this. Yes, I have my as same like in our last one, which we did. It was we're on this series of a life in the Assyrian Empire. I my favorite Assyriologist. Karen Radner, and she has a course called, it's, well, there's a company called Coursera. They do co- uh, college courses, and some of them are free, which this one is a great one. And so um, I must have took the course 40 times by now. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, she's a source. And sometimes it's hard to say, like, where this, 
where actually what she said in this particular thing and where I've read things from her before or listened before are so, but she's a, a big source. And then, of course, uh, you know, other sources in general. And I know you use a different source a lot too. Yeah, I, as uh, from the beginning of Fan of History, I look a lot at Cambridge Ancient History. That's my go-to document. They have done a lot of work for this period. Absolutely. It's such, I always say to you too, that's, you really have to be like so smart. I feel to read Cambridge Ancient History. I have to read through it once. I have no idea what I read. Then I got to read it again. Then I'm getting close. And like you say, you could read it once and get it. <laughs> Actually, before there were podcasts, I used to read Cambridge Ancient History for fun while taking walks. So I walked with these huge books in my hand reading them. You could walk and read? Yes. Oh, In English. See, that's amazing. Uh, maybe I was just lucky that I wasn't hit by a car. Yeah, well, wow. That is amazing. I, I was reading something in, from Cambridge Ancient History recently, and there was like, I, had a, I have to look up half the words. I don't even know what they mean. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> but I've spent maybe uh, 17 years with my nose in those books, so I do, I do like them. Very good. Yeah, they are very detailed, so... So yeah, anyway, I digress as I usually do. And so we were gonna we have this whole series. We're gonna do different recordings on this. So I think we take our time and do it right. And our um today we were gonna talk about family life. Yes. Start with the what were homes like in Assyria, you know? Like how did ordinary people live, right? Exactly. I mean, we we know a lot about how they lived in the cities because they were excavated by archaeologists, including my friend who doesn't know I'm her friend, Karen Radner. <laughs> um, she excavated some places in Asher and in Anatolia. And they're a little bit different depending on, you know, if you're in the city or in the countryside. I should say the provinces because really the countryside, they haven't excavated any Assyrian uh, homesteads. In Israel, they have, you know, they know a lot about uh, common people's homes in, in Israel. Um, but in Assyria, which is, nor you know, the heartlands northern Iraq, just um they really don't have what it, what it's like on a farm. So what we're going to talk about is what was what we know was like in the city. Um but you know a lot of stuff you can figure. Yeah, I have to stop I have to stop you there for because just let that sink in. We know that the people of Assyria yeah, they have to have been mostly farmers. This is an agricultural economy and we don't have a single farm. We, we can't look at the farm and see what it was like. So, but here's one of the things about about that kind of history and this history too, is that we could somewhat, you can't ever be 100% sure, right? But we could somewhat ex extrapolate from what we know from even more in the past and in, even in the future and even today that we know. Like, for example, you know, she says we're not really sure what their houses were like in, you know, farms, but we do know in the marshes of southern Iraq, that would be southern Babylonia, like the Sealand, they did and they still do make homes from reeds. So I think it's safe to assume that, you know, they would have had reed houses in that area. And it's kind of interesting, these reed houses, actually. Have you heard about these things? Not really. Tell me. So there's, there's, they're called, the basic house is called a sarifa, which is a structure made, um, with the reeds that grow naturally in the marshlands. And they make these bigger ones that are called modhifs. And those are for like the sheik of the village. 
And now they have one. We don't have one, you know, saved because they're reeds. They only last maybe 10 years. You have to redo your house. But there is from 3300 BC in Uruk, and it's in the British Museum, there's a, like a carving. So we know that they made them then. And they're still, they call them marsh Arabs. They still uh, live there today and they still make them. And they're pretty cool. They make them out of, you know, these reeds. They weave them together. They're bundled and woven into thick columns. And then they're bent and they're made into arches. And I mean, they're amazing. I'll, I'll post some links. There's like, I mean, they're like amazing. Almost, you know, they're woven mats of reeds and they form this whole, you know, building envelopes. They, they allow light and ventilation. The thing is, they do, they need to be rebuilt every 10 years. So <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of redo. It's kind of neat too, though. I mean, it's, I guess if you own the property and you could get the reeds, it's not like you got to run to. Do you have Home Depot? We have Home Depot and Lowe's. You know, buy all this lumber. You just get some reeds. <laughs> <laughs> Post some pictures on our Facebook. Yeah, for sure. And and the reeds are made. The, the most the most common reed is called the Ifdri reed, and it makes it. It's a really good building material because it's got a high concentration of silica, at which makes it water resistant. It's insects and pests don't like it. It's insulating thermally and with sound so it's pretty cool maybe we should build one maybe not <laughs> maybe not but i mean in any case i would think that the common people would you know where they had reeds and then otherwise you know they made homes out of mud and and they put reeds for the roofs and things like that but in any case um you know like you said most of the people were farmers but we know the most about the cities and the homes there let's go to the cities then All right, let's see what a house would look like, right? So, like we said before, the houses in Assyria were smaller and the houses in the provinces were larger. It's kind of just like today, where if you bought an apartment or a house in New York or Stockholm, you know, you would get a smaller one. And if you move out to the country, you can get a bigger one for, you know, the same price, that kind of thing. Yep. But I think what was really interesting to me, and I hope I could convey this across, because, you know, we live in this bubble of history where we have houses and windows and heaters and all these things that we have. So, but in Assyria, and I'm sure a lot of other places, the basic house is organized around a courtyard. And the courtyard is important because everything you need to do in the where there's light involved, like cooking, baking, making clothes, washing, all these things would happen inside the courtyard. But like the courtyard is part of the house. It's not like, you know, it's not like a courtyard that's in your backyard or something like that. The house is basically built. I have some pictures here. I'm not sure if... I'll post them too if you look it up. You'll you know basically you walk into the house and then there's this big courtyard where you you know where there's light and then doors would go off to that and some of the rooms would be private you know like bath uh, bedrooms and things like that and then um, sometimes there'd be multiple courtyards if you were very you know wealthy. Um, but the point is why you need light is there was no windows. There's no I mean there's no glass. How would you see anything? You know, if you had just holes in the windows on the outside, you'd have rain and things would come in. So basically, this would be an open area where you could, where we'd let light in. That sounds a lot like uh, later uh, Greek and Roman houses. Yeah, I think it was probably just the way you had to do it. I mean, for the most part, I did a little a little sidebar. Of course, it's like, well, when did they make glass? And so you'll you'll find that the Romans invented glass for windows around 100 A.D. But even then, it's not glass like you'd think of it today wouldn't it be like your window you could just look out the window it's more like a flattened jar and you really couldn't see much through it all right kind of you know like imagine just squished a jar and then just like sort of you know it wasn't until the 1600s until people had glass windows <laughs> my god i know right 
Um, in Asia, they would put paper over the walls, you know, like thin paper so you could see. Not over the walls, I'm sorry, like over the windows. But So anyway, basically in Assyria, anything in, you needed to happen with light, you had to do out, so outside. And that also means that uh, the only opening towards the street is the, the door. Right. They may have some windows on that outside part just to let some air in sometimes, but with no coverings, you know. But the door, yes, the door is very important. If you remember on the Epic of Gilgamesh, even they went out to get uh, cut down the trees to get floor to get to make a door for the for Gilgamesh's house, and the doors were very important actually. So they made the house out of mud bricks, which we'll talk about. But then the doors were made out of wood, and it's, <laughs> so if you sold your house, you it actually you had to have in the contract whether or not the door and the roof beams came with it or not, because if not, you took them. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> Okay. I don't know how you take a big door with you. I guess I mean you have your servants and you do it. So, so yeah. Okay. So the house has this. Oh, so you know the other thing is most of them only had one floor. You could find a massive house with you know maybe another floor, but in general, most Assyrian houses were just one floor. You come in, you see the courtyard, and then the rooms go off to there. Um, another interesting thing. So you have these rooms where you know you come off, and the rooms that would have no windows and be dark would be like your bedroom where you would sleep, the sleeping rooms, and. They also have bathrooms in the sleep in the bedrooms, so not like a chamber pot. We're talking, you know, six hundred, seven hundred BC. They had running water in their toilets. Yeah, I remember these are the people that invented aqueducts. Right, exactly. Us, the, the soldiers probably a lot of gore to clean off. <laughs> yeah, come in from work, be like, oh, I got a, got some, got some Sumerian blood all over me. Let me go wash my hands. <laughs> So yeah, so typically the, they have the bathroom, and then when somebody would come in, you would admit them in the courtyard. So they would say, you know, hello, they'd come in, or if you have servants, you know, they would admit them in the courtyard, and it's kind of a public area enough, sort of like our living rooms today. I wonder if kids left their shoes by the door and stuff, and mothers yelled at them, take your shoes off. <laughs> um, but so on the walls, they would be sort of dark and shaded inside, but this is good because it's hot. You know, it's hot in most parts of... We're in Assyria. I mean, we went over through the weather. It's not always blazing hot, but it's reasonably hot. So, you know, this ke- helps keep it cool, too. I bet. Mm-hmm. And also, like, so like we said, the house are made of mud brick, which is basically clay with straw. You put them in molds and you make bricks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And for private architecture like this, they wouldn't fire them because it would just be a waste of, you know, firing material. Because for firing, you had to use charcoal, which means you had to cut a tree down, burn it up, and then burn the charcoal. You know, you'll fire up these bricks. So you would just make, you know, use clay. Uh, they would mix them with um, straw and things like that. And then, you know, use bricks. Uh, make them into bricks. I, I, mean, I mean, maybe in the countryside, people made their own bricks, but I'm sure that in the cities, you know, you had brick people. People made bricks, and you bought bricks from the brick guy and the, the brick. So what happens to the mud brick when it rains? So here's what's so interesting, right? Um, first of all, I'm just doing some research. There's a, I have a picture here of a house in Australia that's made completely with modern mud. It's a modern home made with mud bricks. And so I looked up, what are bricks made of today? And you know what they're made of? Clay and water. <laughs> um, but they fire them. Wow, but they, they are fired, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they fire them. So... A house could last about 50 to 60 years. So, and it would, you know, when it rained, it would somewhat melt. But these bricks are, you know, they fired them. They didn't fire them with fire, but they fired them, in quotes, in the sun. So they heated them and they were, I, you know, reasonably hard. I'm going to try it. I have a recipe. Tell me the recipe. It is. I just, I cut it right. So are you interested in giving it a try? Here's a recipe for mud bricks. But remember, mud brick making is more of an art than a science. So here's the recipe, dirt. The sturdiest bricks come from dirt with a clay content of 25 to 50%. Some sand, straw, grass, or pine needles, water, a mold, and then sun. So you mix the soil and water into thick mud, add some sand, mix in the straw or some pine needles, something like that. You pour them into your molds, and then bake them in the sunshine for five days or so. And if you see any cracks, you got to... Um, move them out of the sun and let let them maybe put a little more water in them. And then they say you could test them by dropping them from about hip high. If it breaks, it has too much sand. If not, you're good. So I'm going to try to make some. I just had to order a, mo- a mold from Amazon. I can see how this wouldn't work in Scandinavia because you would never get five days of stri- straight sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm here, probably I'm going to have a trouble too because... Pennsylvania and the east coast of the U.S. the last couple of weeks has been nothing but rain and cold and dark. I'm pretty sure we were building um, uh, wood houses at this point in Scandinavia. I think Radar talked about that because we do have a lot of trees. Yes. Maybe some mud went in between like for like, you know, um, masonry type of stuff. Yep. Stick them together. But yeah, so yeah, but like every every two generations or so, you would have to rebuild the house. So it's just something that happens. When you build a house, it's your grandchildren's problem to right. renovate the house. I imagine, you know, there's sort of like a maintenance. I mean, you know, I have a house, I have maintenance, I have to go out and paint the walls and stuff. You know, it's funny, I was thinking, though, like, so first, I would think for probably 10,000 years, right, humans have been making houses with mud, mud and water. And basically, we're still doing that, right? Our bricks were making factories, but we make them with clay and water and mix them and then fire them. And it's the same thing. Um, you know, Menderfin, like, if we survive 10,000 years, if in 10,000 years people say, oh, they used to make mud, they would call our houses mud brick homes. <laughs> they probably would. You know, right, because maybe they have some space-age polymer that they use. No, those crazy people. They had 
Because, I mean, bricks, they wear out after a while. Regular bricks. They do? Right. So, anyway. But this, this the good thing about the fact that they had to rebuild the house is great for archaeology because... They would just build right on top of the other house. So when they when the archaeologists dig, as most of our history fans know, they you know find all these layers of stuff, and this is why and a lot of rubbish gets trapped between the floors. You could find you know all these new things. Great service to archaeologists. Totally. So here's another thing. You want to hear something else? A little cuckoo. They buried their dead in the houses. Okay. Yeah. Which was something that they is a common thing and and. I know I've talked about Catahoyuk. I won't go too much on a tangent, but they did that in Catahoyuk too, which is the you know the site in Anatolia from 7500 BC, and they yes, one of the first cities. Yeah, right, exactly. And they did have um, they buried them in their rooms. There's tons of things like that. But here they would do they would bury them inside their houses in one of the most private rooms, which is kind of, kind of like a living room. They they called it the strong room, and they would have a tomb like with a trap door, and when someone died. They open the tomb and put the guy in there. Or what well, person. Okay. I, I am doing a 12-part series on John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer for my Swedish Serial Killer podcast. And he is burying people in his crawl space. But there is a lot of smell. What do they do about the smell? So it's a tricky question. We don't know for sure. The, the best data is from the city of Asher. And then the excavations, though, they have are like a hundred years old, so they didn't keep the bones. Like they were, you know, how they were looking for fancy, you know, good stuff, and they didn't think bones were good stuff. But I have a theory, but uh, it's tell me, it's, I do too. Yeah, I think uh, maybe you expose the body first before you buried it, mm -hmm. so that uh, yeah, they, it wouldn't smell when you buried it in the strong room. Absolutely, and that's again, that's what they did in Catahoyuk, and even Godobi Tepe, they. You know, in Godob, I always pronounce it wrong, but that you know, that's the other ancient site, even older. And they have all those vulture um, carvings on their monoliths. And I know in Catahoyuk, that was sort of their, what they did. And there was a lot more wildlife, you know, than there is today. But basically, they would take the bodies out and, like you said, expose them. But then vultures would, you know, let vultures eat them for a couple of days and really like pick them clean. And then and now, so they're not sure they have another body in Assyria, and they think they maybe they boiled the bones then. You know, because it was exposed to temperature. It would be weird to like put out grandmother after she died and watch the vultures eat her before <laughs> you put her under your living room floor. I mean, it is, to us it's insane, but I guess the things, I mean, maybe if they thought like what we do, we inject formaldehyde in the bodies and drop them. Okay. Oh, I'm going to totally take a tangent. Sorry, but for the fans, I want everybody to know when I'm buried, I want to be buried with like, um, First of all, I'm not getting cremated. I want some archaeologist to find me in a long time. And I'm going to put in, I want like laser-carved metal plates with all the ancient books so that in case something happens, like the libraries are burned down, that when they find my body, they'll have all this stuff. Sounds great. <laughs> I, I merely want a giant pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> That's all? Okay. You guys heard it. And then they could carve like the knowledge on the stones of the pyramid. Sure. Yeah, in all languages too. So it'd be like sort of a Rosetta Stone. It'll call it the Dan Stone. And I, I would like some uh, lethal traps in the pyramid. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh! There was a there was a project in Germany where they, uh, but they required cremation. They were going to put uh, six million people into 
The Stones of the Pyramid and build a pyramid of six million stones. Oh, that's kind of crazy. That's a lot of people have to agree. I don't know if that happened or not, but uh, I read about it like 10 years ago. Wow. That's just crazy. Okay, enough with the tangents. Back to Asher. Enough with that. It's getting morbid. So, yeah, they buried them in there. I mean, it's a common thing, you know, ancestor worship, that kind of thing. So, um, and they also, sometimes they put them, they call them bathtubs, sarcophagi. We're not even, they're not sure if they're bathtubs or, or tomb, you know, coffins. But, and there's a big discussion in air quotes by the scholars, which means they're like killing each other over it. Maybe they were both. So first you used it as a bathtub and then, okay, somebody died. Let's get a new one. Mm-hmm, probably something along those lines. It's, that's what that's what you know. We call it the dirt nap. They call it the permanent bath. Maybe. Anyhow, so that's the way. That's how um, a house was built. Um, but I think next we would talk about you know the people in the house, right? Oh yes. But did I miss anything? Do you have any questions about the houses? I think we covered it pretty much, right? I'm just imagining those streets where the houses have no windows and they are narrow. And pretty dark, I bet. Yeah, very private inside. And then, you know, you have that courtyard when it's nice out and you could everybody be in there. It seems from, uh, to give a spoiler for our legal uh, episode, but that uh, burglary was uh, quite uncommon. Huh. But, uh, of course, if you had just a door as the only way to get into the house, you are probably quite safe from burglars. Yeah, good point. And also... I mean, I imagine the crime, the penalty for burglary is probably pretty harsh in Assyria. It seems the Assyrians have a very low crime rate in their cities, but we'll we'll talk more about that in the in the legal episodes. Oh, gotcha. I'm I'm interested to hear about that myself. So yeah, so the people, you know, they buried their the, there's the dead people were in the house, but there's also actually living people in the house. So typically. Um, the house was passed on to the eldest son and his family. So the normal setup would be one family lives in the house and the dead people, of course, have you know, a couple generations, dead and alive, though. So the children of this family, they'd um, live with their parents uh, till they reached, not just until they reached adulthood, but sometimes longer. They would typically only move out when they got married. There's a bigger households. Girls, um, for sure, but also boys. We know a lot about these homes. Um, you know, I'm going to start that part over. Sorry. So, yeah, the children of the family, they would live with their parents um, until adulthood, but sometimes longer, because the thing is, the boys, the eldest son was the one who would get the house, right? And then the girls would get a dowry when they got married. But the di- the time to get married was way different from boys and girls. Um, the son wouldn't get married until his father died. And the uh, then he could get his inheritance, and then he'd get married. And we know quite a bit about how long Assyrians lived, so men could live to 50, 55, 60. So, you know, we're coming to the end of our rope here if we were in Assyria, Dan. <laughs> so what was the... Uh, the average lifespan was somewhere between 50 and 60. Yeah. I mean, that's how long you would live if you didn't get killed or something else happened to you before. You know, I imagine there's a lot of uh, widows and widowers and that kind of thing. You know, you die young, and but... Uh, typically a boy, a ma- you know, male, wouldn't get married until his father died. So you're talking like late 20s, around 30. But the bride would be much younger, much, much younger. So he would find a girl who would have just entered adulthood, someone who just was able to have a baby, carry a pregnancy, and and give birth without dying. 
as soon as you can. So we're talking about a girl who's maybe 13 or 14 years old, and her husband is in her late 20s early in, or early 30s. And that's the typical setup. He must have been uh, sometimes in his 40s. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Like, so I'm thinking like, so if you're, you know, right. So if the father lived to be 60 and, you know, he he, he didn't get married till he's 30. He wouldn't have his first kids, right? So, yeah, he could be kind of a lot older. Are we talking mainly arranged marriages then? Yes, for the most part. But it's not really clear. I don't really have tons of information on it. It was, but, you know, marriage wasn't, was a more of a thing to be, you know, to make babies was the point. And yeah, I would imagine it would be kind of hard to find, you know, being 30 and be, you know, kind of trolling for the 13-year-olds. Marriage is probably uh, one of the most important uh, functions of marriage is to settle inheritance. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then the girl brings her dowry, which is, she gets that right away. She doesn't have to wait till the father dies. But the man, like you say, he has to wait till the father dies to get his inheritance. But that's... the. The oldest son is the one who gets the home. The other kid, the other sons get some things, but not really as much. So, you know, typically they move out. Like in, in Greece, when we had the Greek colonization, same kind of thing. So, you know, this is when the empire is growing. So they typically would move out of the house and, um, you know, go into the provinces and, you know, get a new house, get a new family, the whole thing. The, you know, the other, the, the second kids and th- things like that. Yeah, they have to make their own fortune. Right. Now, sometimes they did find some houses that are divided up because, you know, they would do that once in a while. But in general, they, um, you know, the, the, the man, the men left, the boys that weren't, you know, kept to keep the house. And then so in the house then was, so then, so say your father dies or so you live in the house. So there's a lot of us me, which is kind of funny because my oldest son is 30 and my daughter's 13. So it's like he's waiting for me to die and she's ready to get married to, you know, some other guy about his age. And then so the... You know, the, the father dies, the inheritance have the boy, son gets the inheritance, but the mother is still there, and because she, she was much younger, right? I mean, she was married when she was 13 or 14, and the guy was 30, so she's still there. So you got to live with your mother-in-law. You know, the new bride comes in, lives with the mother-in-law. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how that worked. And, you know, your, grandma, your dead grandmother's in there and all the dead people. Sounds like a, a nice setup for home life. <laughs> There's um, there's more people in the house too. Could you guess? Besides the, fa- there's sort of family, but sort of not. Servants. Yeah, but slaves. Yeah, so slaves. Yes. But there, there's not a great number of slaves in Assyria, right? No, not a great number, and it's kind of it's not like it's not like how it ended up in Rome later on, when you know they were having all these wars and bringing in all these slaves. Some of them, some of the slaves would have been bought. You know, they would have been there's a slave trade. They would have been prisoners of war, and even like they say, um, slaves from Anatolia were were desired. I think they were, it's kind of like the Greek slaves that were desired in Rome because they were the teachers and things like that. That's just my opinion, but we do know that they were desired. But the thing is, they a lot of families never actually had to buy slaves because the slaves were born into the family. So what would be is, you know, you would say your family did buy slaves at some point when the household was started, but then inside of the family... The, the father, the male, the males of the family would actually have children with the slaves, but those children would not be official family members legally, but they would be kind of emotionally. They would all live together, and then they would be multi-generational, which is kind of, you know, weird and interesting at the same time. Yeah, it's uh, one thing you have to consider when you think about this family life is that it was a model that lasted for a very long time. So it must have been... Uh 
surely partly because the Assyrians were so conservative, but in some sense, the model was working. Right. I mean, it's, you know, we, we talk today about, you know, women's work versus men's work, which is so like, you know, going away because of all our technology. But I remember learning in my history classes, just, you know, when I was in college, just, just until, you know, even like the 1800s, you know, they say keep the fire burning and they kind of mean that like, you know, romantically, but somebody literally had to keep the fire burning, like a lit fire in the homestead. It was not like you have matches, <laughs> you know? Like, you have a fire burning, you got to keep it going. You got to keep feeding it. Like, that was somebody's job. And that was, you know, if you didn't have slaves, that was like, so I'm, you know, I live by myself and I have my kids and I could do things. But if I had somebody have to be here keeping the fire lit, I couldn't even go to work. <laughs> That's terrible. Right. So it was the sort of a thing. You needed these arrangements. So, and yeah, so the, the Syrian slavery thing was a little, you know, different than, you know, what we typically think of slavery. Not saying it was, you know, probably fun for the slaves because basically you're a second class citizen. But the, so, you know, essentially they had a monogamous, legally monogamous relationship. But in practice, there were other, you know, children from not legal wives and things like that. So imagine they could make interesting stories. They must have had good soap operas. Yes, Assyrian family dramas would be a thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wait, they're like fighting with the dead grandmother under the floor, the mother-in-law, <laughs> the slave girl. Oh, my gosh. The 13-year-old hitting puberty that's getting married. All right. Couldn't imagine. I'll take my oath. Yeah, so, um, and like we said before, they they do have um, bigger houses in the provinces. That was the only, you know, kind of wrapped that up in the, in the, in the, in the bigger houses that they found in the, in the provinces, like the one that Karen Radner excavated. She said it was enormous, like just huge, not as big as the king's palace, but like close. And the fact that it was a new house, they had a lot of slaves. They had to pick up all new slaves. So that's kind of how that, that went. I bet you were you were quite constrained by the city walls in the in the main cities. Exactly, just like today. Yeah, you kind of don't want to live outside the city wall when um, things go bad. Right. If you want to live where things are happening, you want to live in the city. Like in like in six twelve BC, but then the city walls didn't help it either. Yeah, but you made it for a long time, you know. <laughs> Definitely for a long time. So yeah, that wraps up the family, the family life. So yeah, that wraps up, uh, you know, the homes and the family life in Assyria. And we're going to come back with some more. And the next time, I think we're going to talk about the monarchy. So make sure you come. Yes, and then go into the the social structure of the empire, how this conservative mechanism that kept it all together for such a long time. Yeah, and as a growing empire, which is really inter- the interesting thing, you know. So yeah, you know, um, comment on our Facebook page, send me messages, any questions, anything like that. It's, you know, Bernie Mayapolsky. Do our Patreon, right, Dan? Yes. If you like this show, please contribute on the Patreon, Fan of History. Yes. A dollar a show would help us quite a bit. And I accept Bitcoin. <laughs> do you? I do. I have Bitcoin. I have, I have a couple of them. I think we should actually make some of these episodes into non-fungible tokens and we could sell them. All right, let's do it. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get you next time on Fan of History. Yes. See you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Fan of History. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.